And as far as schedule. Welcome to the Republican Professor. This morning, we are so honored to be joined by Hunter's Blend Coffee. And with Hunter's Blend Coffee, we have Mike and Paul. Good to have you, Mike and Paul. And we got Curtis from Texas joining us. And I'm in Orange County where everybody is crazy. But thank you. I noticed you left out my last name too. So, and why do you think I did that? Like, <laughs> it could have a few letters in there. Well, well I can attest to something here. Uh, Mike's last name is Swartzen Trooper, but I sometimes call him Mike Schwarzenegger because the man works out. And uh, I thought <laughs> I could bench press a lot back in a few years ago, Mike, and you took me into the gym and outdid me real quick. That was a long time ago. Yeah. Mike, I also left out Paul's last name. That's right. My name's Curtis. So. Paul Curtis, yeah. Oh, my name's Curtis. Oh, but that's my first name. <laughs> well, uh, so you guys created Hunter's Blend Coffee. How long ago did you create that? say about four years ago, Mike? Yes, I was thinking uh, the way origin, but yes, Hunter's Blend is about four years. That's right. Paul's yeah. got the even the backstory to that. Tell us where you're located. In Mechanicsburg, Ohio. That's between Columbus and Dayton for people that know Ohio. Mm -hmm. well, what's what's the cool. backstory to the to the four years ago? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, we can get into this, uh, but basically 20 years ago, we started a importing roasting company called Hemisphere Coffee Roasters, and we're running, my wife and I own that. That's kind of what I would call the mother company or the umbrella of where Hunter's Blend sprang from. Uh, I love hunting. Still that company it does, still yeah, okay. that's, that's where I, that is really what's putting out Hunter's Blend uh, product and order fulfillment, uh, all of that. But so Hemisphere Coffee Roasters, uh, yeah, 20 years ago, started importing directly from farmers as a way to help them help themselves. I was working for a church agency. We gave handouts. We gave money for water wells and agricultural projects and a new roof on a church building. And I I was working for Rosedale International, a church organization that did church planting, but also did a lot of community uh, projects to, to help the communities function better, like, like wells and mm -hmm. small crop farming, training and things. Now you're that. talking about in a different country, right? I'm talking about Central, all across Central America, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, El Salvador, Honduras, and then into South America. Ecuador. And I saw the limitations of, of a handout. It's like cocaine. You get addicted to annual infusion of money. You, you just plan on that. And it destroys dignity. It destroys initiative. It destroys human, the pride of a job well done. It's just kind of is this glaze and uh, pastors and community leaders would line up at my little room I was staying at when I would make my annual visits and ask for money. And so the, the idea of Hemisphere Coffee Roasters was really born out of my master's work in missiology. 
study of missions and what, how can a foreigner go into another country and become embedded in the, the, the life of a community and out of that contact share one's reason for the hope within them rather than being at a street corner kind of preaching or being an oddity in the culture. And I thought, what better way than business? Uh, you have people calling on you, you call on people, you drag your butt home at night, tired, and you worked. You weren't this typical missionary. So I did a whole research out of that, and we started Hemisphere Coffee Roasters as an importing, buying directly from farmers, doing fair business-to-business transactions. No gift, no yeah, uh, giving out money, but buying, paying fairly for coffee. Creating an opportunity. Yeah. But then my brother-in-laws, Ken Beachy, who's not on this, and Mike, I married Mike's sister. We would sit around Thanksgiving and Christmas every time we got together, talk about hunting, talk about our faith, talk about coffee. And I started sort of, I guess, a year before we became official, uh, had just one blend of Hunter's Blend and trying to, uh, I mean, my saying is uh, coffee makes the hunting world go round. Mm. The first guy up in the morning put the coffee on. That's just, really? it's, it's the Java of, uh, that greases the wheels for, you know, early morning sitting in a turkey blind or a waterfowl or deer hunting. You got to have coffee. Do you have a logo that you could show everybody what what your logo looks like, your branding? Yeah, put that up there and hold it up there for a few seconds so people can look at it. Yeah, say, yeah, there you go. Pretty cool. Nice. Very cool. I grew up hunting in Colorado, and when I saw that, I was like, that is awesome. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's sweet. You, but you were told hunters, hunters are, are common people. They're, they're middle America. And uh, we, we get flown over a lot here with the candidates. But um, if you want to up your game in your taste palette of coffee, you're usually in bed with, can I say Starbucks or Pete's or Caribou or organizations that if they have profits, probably aren't, they're probably funding uh, causes and, and entities that are trying to work to shut your hunting down. Absolutely. So why shouldn't we have our own coffee? Mike, can I, can I, uh, can I probe into a little bit of your background? You, you mentioned you studied missiology. Uh, Paul. Yeah. Sorry. I'm sorry, Paul. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So missiology is the three disciplines. It's, it's theology and anthropology and strategy. So this is what God said about the world, about people. What's his heart for the world? And then anthropologists, how do people organize themselves and how does culture emerge? And then strategy, how might Coca-Cola get its product into an orange Fanta drinking culture? You look for dissatisfaction. You look for people who are disgusted with, you know, there's all these indicators of change. So strategy and those three disciplines together is what is coined missiology. Where'd you study missiology? 
in uh, Simpson Graduate School. In and Redding, did you California. get it? Did where did you get the business? Did you study business there? No, uh, that was I, I used to work at a in sales for a tool store in Northern Indiana. Okay, but business is um, I'm a I'm a dreamer an entrepreneur about one out of a hundred things that I think of mm-hmm. uh, may be good, and that's my wife's job to figure out which is the good idea here. <laughs> so you're the dreamer. She's the executor. That's right. Yes. <laughs> well, one more question on this. When you were talking about go the gift thing and I was like, okay, he's not a communist. So I was taking notes and I was like, I thought he was a communist. All right. Well, okay, he's not, so he's I'm not a, a communist. capitalist. <laughs> and, uh... So then I was like, oh wait, if he's not a communist, what is he? Yeah. Um, so no, but uh, the, the whole thing you were talking about is awesome what you're saying but then the bells are going off in my mind and i know that there's people watching this maybe now maybe a year or two in the future that that will wonder yeah but for business you gotta get the money to give away you gotta have the profit and so how did you figure out (laughs) this is such a loaded question and you can't answer it so easily but i'll i'll throw it out there anyway because i know somebody's asking this somebody's wondering this how do you get that margin how do you get that profit how do you figure out how to make this work not only for yourself and for your employees but for this kind of work you're doing in the community development and all that stuff yeah well i just in a nutshell my faith informs me that all people are we're created in God's image. So if I'm working with a poor farmer who has a really good coffee crop, whatever price I spend to him has to work for him. It 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 can't be exploiting in nature. God doesn't exploit people, but he wants us to create hmm. and we create wealth. There's nothing wrong with the profit. That is huge. What you just said, creating wealth. Yeah. The kids that I teach at business, I've taught in business departments for over a decade, business uh, public policy in Cal state Pepperdine. And the, the idea, some kids get it. Some kids don't. And I think a lot of it has to do with their parents, who their parents were, what their parents did, what they saw growing up. And some kids that don't get it, the the bernie kids i call them (laughs) they say um they don't understand that wealth is created so what do you mean by that how is wealth created well where there was none there is now i mean uh you're you're taking a product and you're improving it adding value to it and for creating wealth in central america much of that is just finding uh markets finding outlets for a product that they worked hard to produce and uh i mean it's it's well that you're you're a business uh instructor you probably need to tell me because i'm learning you know that sometimes you're just moving pieces around and you call you know when i take an account from another roaster and, you know, it's like, well, I didn't really create anything. I just improved my bottom line. But when a farmer tells me 10 years after we're doing work with them that the whole 
economy of the community is different. That that worker now has a little extra money to buy batteries, let's say for his little music player. The kiosk he bought the battery from now has money to buy rice and beans from the grocer. And the grocer now has money to buy tires for his, and that money just spins in that community and everybody's lifted because you paid fairly. It worked for the farmer. He could in turn put inputs and hire employees and, and workers, but it has to work for me too. It has, I can't get so much uh, money in that coffee yeah. per pound that I can't sell it. So it's, then it would be, it would be ended. It would not, that'd be over. If I exploit the farmer right. and he's out of business in two years, it's over. It's got to, so I always go in very, I don't know how you feel about, about um, transparent bartering, but that's what I do with all my, I'm very, here's what I pay for packaging, for labor, for, you know, my overhead. I tell that to the farmer and he tells me what his inputs are, what his labor costs, his diesel fuel, drying the coffee. And then we find a place, a price point that works. I really like that. Um, uh, I want to I want to come back to that in just a quick second because I think that's a really great way to lift um, uh, new entrepreneurs or or you know people that are that are in other levels of economy. I mean, for lack of a better term, we'll just say third world, learning how to interact with first world um, high high performing business. You know, I think that what you're doing in that piece that that you just that you just said was you're mentoring them. You're mentoring them in business. Oh, and that's what these people so need. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I want to go back to a little bit earlier where you said the word value. I think people don't realize what value is um, when they're creating, uh, when they're, when they're create like when they're starting and they're being an entrepreneur and what they're actually creating is value. And that value has a worth. They're, they're extrapolating equity yeah. out of a situation. Yes. And, and it's, it's creating those channels um, and those connections uh, as we, I, I'm sure, you know, you're well aware of this, that in the Christian community in particular is somewhat rampant with, with people that think that, that uh, making a profit um, has an, an unethical pro there's something unethical about yeah, yeah. take right. finding something for $10 and selling it for 20 um, yeah. like you're, you're stealing, you know, right. Right. But the reality is I found that for $10. And if you were to look for it on your own, you might be paying 30 or $40 for it. But I found a really good deal and I was able to bring you a value by selling it less than you'd find it on your own when you consider time spent, resources spent, and I'm making it efficient. So I'm saving you time. That's, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of values there. Um, and, and then I wanted to point out one more thing where you said, maybe I'm not adding any value when I take that account from the other person, but I would submit to you that you are. You are adding a lot of value because that person would never have left the other person right. had, there, had everything been going well and smooth. No. And no. I think what you're creating there is you're establishing trust and no. you're establishing stability. And you, you know, even if you did everything the same and didn't give him any more money, those things are valuable. And these are Good more, point. you're, you're developing the moral world of entrepreneurship yeah. and that is about what's valuable. 
Well, and there's a few points for, I think that will help shed some light too. These um, business relationships are based out of relationship. They're not <clears throat> just going on the open market, finding a random person. So they come out of relationships. So there's a level of trust Absolutely. Uh, for starters. Uh, another just real world practical thing is uh, by purchasing direct, that means bypassing five to six middlemen in some cases, which that does provide that margin that you were asking about. <clears throat> the other thing, <clears throat> excuse me, is paying the farmer more for extra work, making sure that he's handling the coffee a certain way, doing these processes and during growth and selecting, taking extra time to select the better beans. It takes, so he's doing more work to create a better product for which he gets paid for. So it's a combination of all those things. So it's not a handout. It's a, it's a combination of all those things, but there's <clears throat> something I've been thinking about lately, <clears throat> excuse me, that of course we've always heard, you know, piece of the pie. So if, if this person over here has a piece of the pie, that's supposedly that much less pie that's left for me. That's the lie of Marxism and humanism. Mm. And that's a huge like point, to, Mike. That's yeah, a I'd huge like to point. Do a, yeah, I'd like to do a study on it. I, <clears throat> but this has been kicking around in my head for a year or more. I believe that wealth, we're made in the image of God. He made this earth. He put wealth in the earth. In Genesis, it talks about this certain part of the land. That's where the gold is. I, I mean, that the, just this morning in morning prayer. Yeah. Yeah. So God and, and he forever talks about the great wealth in heaven and how he's, you know, and he owns a cattle. On a wealth is God's idea. How we use it is is a different is another question. But I believe that wealth, it's either unlimited or maybe the pie is so big that we could never reach the end. I'm not sure what the right, but we are made in God's image. So create it because we have to be. Look, the, the earth now has how many billion people compared to when there was the first 100,000. And yet we're all doing incrementally better. And if we could export freedom and free market to these countries that are just barely, you know, living below poverty all day they would advance it as well. It's not, if they advance, then we have to decrease. You know, obviously that's a lie, but I think there's a whole other subject, but I, I believe that wealth is unlimited because of the creativity that God put in each one of you and each one of us, that we're, we have his image stamped on us. And anyways, that's a whole other subject, but I, so every time something new is created, there's a great book, it's called economics in one lesson i don't know if it's an old book oh yeah henry hazlitt uh, it's it was that's an amazing book but it kind of covers some of that like when the guy making buggy whips in the automobile was embedded he he couldn't sell buggy whips anymore but yes yes that's a great book oh he's that, still does around that book, he's have, not does some... that book have pictures in it because otherwise i can't <laughs> I got yeah, rid of all my books that don't have pictures. It doesn't have one picture in it. Oh, man. Well, that's why I threw it away. I don't have any Bibles anymore because I 
each one. I was like, where they, are the pictures? They sell children's versions. <laughs> there you go. Mike, can I ask you, uh, did you grow up hunting? Yeah. When uh, I actually, when I was uh, 13, that's Ken, the other partner, uh, married my sister, Twyla, and he took me under his wing and taught me how to trap. And I was just caught up in, uh, in the outdoors and stuff. And I didn't hunt a whole lot. I mostly was more of a trapper when I was, uh, you know, through, through high school and did some hunting, but I always stayed in contact with it. And I just loved reading and, uh, you know, used to get outdoor life as a kid. And, uh, so not, I got outdoor (laughs) life too. Oh yeah. This happened to me and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, and the, so, and I've always stayed in touch of it, especially with uh, family and brothers-in-law. And then uh, my, where I got really active in hunting, my son, when he was in sixth grade, so that's about 10 years ago, um, he got interested in archery and I started getting him lessons. And then that's when I got bit with the archery bug. And so I've been uh, archery hunting ever since then. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, Paul, did you grow up hunting? I did. I grew up in Northwestern Pennsylvania hunting uh, first uh, first day of deer season, school shut down. You couldn't buy gas. Everybody's in the woods, teachers, students. And we uh, we went to school with shotguns in our back seat because we were going to hunt pheasants on the way home. Uh, and in how that many how many the, murders were in your high school? Yeah, yeah there wasn't any. Well, uh, how's that work? Wait, hold on I a know. second. Right. We have to uh, micromanage everything. Guns are violent. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Don't we have to take away freedom from ordinary law-abiding citizens in order to ensure that uh, people don't get murdered? Right. That's, exactly. that's the narrative. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, back to our conversation about creating wealth. Uh, I have a couple of interns that I engage usually each year, and I talk to them a lot about, and I would say this to any of your listeners, I think the secret of tapping into God's creativity and unlimited wealth is becoming good at something. Get the degree, get the internships, get the skills you need to be really good at something. And maybe alongside of that, find out where a problem is in the world and take your skill set now from a, from a creative position and address that problem and you will create wealth you'll create a need for yourself and you know along along those lines right now we have we have a lot of problems that are already solved that Mm -hmm. but but that are being uh uh used kind of like mike was saying earlier i think it was mike who was saying it uh, the the profits of which are being used to to advance uh problems a, a bigger problem and so there's a lot of opportunity here in front of us to uh, have good people doing solving yeah. the same problems that are already being solved because those good people need to be supported. Yeah. yeah. Straight up. Just two economies. Just that's how we can. Well, we can there, fight there, against we're, um, we're, we're, try, we're, no, no, it's fine. Uh, we're, I wanted to get into a little bit about Mike answered exactly the question I was asking about margin. You said that you cut out the middleman. How did you end up doing that? Where'd that idea come from? Hmm. Did you, did you see somebody else do that? And you're like, I can do that. And how did you, 
feel confident enough to where because i imagine this magic this meant you went to central america yourself right to establish relationships or am i missing something so let me let me address that because that's that's the mat that's the uh that's the mission um i took starting probably 25 years ago i would i was working for the mission agency i was traveling to central america indonesia east africa mostly developing countries we had expats we had american missionaries there doing variety of things. Central America and South America, we pulled all our foreign workers out and we were just relating to the national churches that had emerged. There was 80 churches in Nicaragua, 35, 40 churches in Costa Rica. And every year I'd go down and visit them. But um, I would take about 25 years ago, I started taking businessmen and women on study tours. How can we really address the misery and the, the poverty that's in this, what, what are our answers? Mm-hmm. And the answers I think would work in downtown Chicago. The left has created misery in this country. There is a misery, whether it's addiction, uh, welfare. Other countries too. Other other countries countries. Too. Yep. Exactly. Yep. So most of the countries I was working in were either dictators or had uh, just a lot of limited ownership, title rights to property. There was just, it was sketchy. So the study tours basically came out. There is a buyer going to the farmer buying wet cherries, just fresh fruit. That buyer is selling a truckload of cherries to a processing mill. That mill is working on getting two containers to a buyer they have. That guy buying the two containers has 10 containers headed for Germany. The Germany importer has needs 100 containers to do a Folgers account or something. So all those intermediaries were putting 25 to 40 cents a pound. So the farmer is getting 70, 80 cents and the coffee is three fifty a pound up here, because all the intermi- And I had a internal revenue uh, auditor uh, with me one time, and I said, "Andy, we got to find the money. Where's the money?" And we talked to farmers. We talked to uh, the heffies or directors at benef- at the benef- uh, the mills, and then we talked to the National Ministry of Agriculture export. And they all would say different things. And basically this author said, they're all lying. They're all protecting their source and their contacts. And what we need is just an entity up in the States, just buy direct from the farm. That was 20 years ago when we started doing that. And there was it like in Costa Rica is almost like five or six cartels that ran all that export. But it was just when it was beginning to emerge, there's got to be a better way for farmers to get a better price for their coffee. And so for $35 in Nicaragua, I got my farmer an export license. I registered him with the USDA, FDA here in the US. I became the importer, he was the exporter. And we started doing that and that that really, 
was at the front edge of what we call direct trade movement. And it's That's big awesome. now. That's but huge. 20 years ago, there was nobody doing it. Uh, brokers up here who bought coffee, these big companies, they said, you can't do it. You, you, you cannot go direct. You're going to get screwed. But as Mike said, that's the power of relationship. Amen. Here's Diego, who I've walked with in my church ministry work with him. And he's got 300 acres of coffee. And he makes four containers a year. And we start importing those uh, direct and paying him now twice, three times what he's ever seen for coffee before. And it, it just changed his whole life. There's, there's teachers now in the school on his farm. There's health clinics. There's women's clinics. There's, it, it's a whole different community. And are the, people, world, are the people there, are they connecting the dots uh, as far oh, as yeah. Oh, yeah. this isn't our leftist government no, helping no. us? This is actually American business people. Yeah, yeah. And it's, and it's not a handout. Diego's got a lot of oh, hard no. work, like Mike said, to sort the coffee and send us the best. Yeah. Yeah. I meant like, are they connecting the dots between the work? They have an incentive in other words to do high quality work or ensure you're happy. Yeah. They make you happy. They make the American customer happy. The American customer has the deep pocket. Yeah. The deep pocket will flow the money down to them where they need. Yeah. I've enjoyed setting up a projector in a building and letting the workers come see shots of us pulling espresso and lines of customers uh, giving them, you know, they just get these big eyes. That's, that's what we do. Yeah. And that's, that's really smart. amazing. That's People really smart. who were born in poverty, their grandpa, the grandpa was poor. They're poor. They sort of have this idea that the gods or God, if I'm working in Indonesia with Muslims, it's the God must have overlooked us you know they have this almost bring on this persona that we're really less sad man that is else. really yeah. sad but when i link arms with a farmer and say dude you make wonderful coffee let me just tell you one little story diego chavadia who we get a lot of our coffee in the hunter's blend in nicaragua has four brothers and we were all together my first time to their farm the brothers were there and Diego and I said, what's your coffee taste like? And they all looked at each other. We don't know. And I'm like, wait a minute, you're coffee farmers and you don't know what your coffee tastes like. They said, our dad taught us you sell everything. And then what was left over was so bad. We don't drink it. And I noticed on their breakfast nook was a can of Nescafe in style. And I'm like, you guys drink instant coffee. Yeah, but we don't like it, but our coffee that's left over is so bad. And so we went to the mill, got some of their coffee. I brought it up. I had a little roaster heat gun with me. I roasted 30 grams, ground it up. Gloria brought a tea kettle off a boil, and I did a little pour over for her. And I took that cup, and I said, here, Diego, you, you take the first drink. And he takes this sip. I'll never forget his eyes got big and these big old tears rolled down. He said, that's wonderful coffee. I said, dude, you make good coffee. And it just to be joint partners 
in business rather than top down, I think it's brought a lot of dignity. And that, that's what we're trying to do. God always restores what was broken. Yes. And it's broken in developing countries. It's, and in Chicago, downtown Chicago and Columbus, it's broken. Yeah, this this is moral uh, moral entrepreneurship at its finest. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. all entrepreneurship is moral. That's uh, a lot of people miss that. It, it's mm-hmm. it, the the regulation mindset, the regulatory mindset, run awry. I mean, some regulations are necessary, obviously, but but uh, the the mindset that there has to be some kind of central authority that ensures yeah. everything about your life. And is is what's destructive to the kind of value approach that you're talking about that actually works. Mm-hmm. And like I tell my students, um, you know, as much as uh, the New York City government wants to control things, for example, there's no commissioner of lunch in New York City, and yet millions of people get lunch somehow. <laughs> amazing how that works and they all There's like no it. centralized yeah. bureaucrat of lunch that makes sure everybody gets lunch it's amazing mm. people come together spontaneously they they notice a need and they try to figure out their relationships and contacts and and uh, yeah so there's some cool. regulations to ensure health and safety but if, if it goes beyond that it's it's destructive to people mm. And, and finding that balance is really the hard work that people don't want to do or they don't know how to do, I guess, maybe. But that's a beautiful story you mentioned there. Yeah, that's awesome. And let me go one step further. Uh, you know, health and safety. I think even safety is become almost as God today. Yeah. Yeah, people come in, you know, safety first, safety first. And I, I've told Mike already, if it had been safety first, the founding fathers would have never started a crazy idea of, of America. Mm-hmm. Safety first. Where's risk? Mm-hmm. And we've done when every time we buy coffee and finance it and, and we do three, four containers a year. I've got probably in a warehouse a half a million dollars of other people's finance coffee. You know, the future, we got to keep selling coffee. And so there's times I don't sleep well at night, but it, it's not safety first. It's not all calculated out. There's risks. And I'm willing to walk with farmers in their risk. Yeah. You know, so that's, that's kind of where I am. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I, I think I cry every time I hear that story about Diego drinking his own coffee, but it's, it's so powerful. Um, there's a hidden gem in buying direct that <clears throat> we kind of stumbled across in Hunter's blend. It wasn't, as you know, you know, the story behind it, just buy direct because of what it can do for the farmer and up here. So, but even if a company was say pro second amendment or pro hunting or, you know, a patriotic constitutional company, and, and that's who the company is that roasts it and sells it. They're, when they're buying off the open market through the U.S. importers, there's a pretty good chance that the U.S. importer yeah. reflects pretty much what you see at 
Starbucks or or wherever. They're they're going to have a similar mindset. They're based so out that, of Long Beach. They're based out of Seattle. They're based out of Portland. Yeah. So their discretionary income, it, it, if you're a patriot and a Second Amendment guy, may be going directly to work against the Second Amendment, limiting your right to, to bear arms or your, your right and freedom to hunt. And so hidden there in plain sight, we realized, whoa, we're, we're doing this other cool thing that's pro-American, pro-hunting, is bypassing that negative underbelly of coffee and going to the farmer. So not only as the, as the roaster and distributor of the coffee are we, you know, patriots and, and constitutionalists and hunters ourselves, um, we, we've also bypassed a negative uh, part of coffee being the importer. So um, it's really from the farmer to the cup. It's, it is pro-American, you know, freedom you know, pro hunting, pro second amendment, because that's, that's, that's who we are. Do you have that written down somewhere? That little thing you just said from the farmer to the cup, pro American or pro free, actually pro freedom would be better, but I'll, I'll write that down. Uh, actually they live in America too. <laughs> the, the central Americans. Yeah. But well, they do. I like using America just be anyways. Yeah. Just because no, no, I mean, I, our, our I history, totally get but, it. But I yeah. totally get it. But, but, um, but I think your heart is, is um, that you would like other people in other countries to enjoy what we take for granted. Sometimes we take for granted uh, in that these, these poor uh, folks that are struggling under uh, conditions that are in many ways created by government policies down there or culture. Yeah. that that harms uh individual rights right the right to make a living the right to um defend yourself effectively you know their right what what second amendment right do they have they don't have any second amendment down there so i mean they don't even have it north of the border in canada right and they're more similar to us in terms of the anglo protestant mm -hmm. uh culture that we 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 inherited from our english ancestor at least legal ancestor not racial ancestor but um you know it's it's interesting that um the the angle that you have there the 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 constitutional or natural rights however you want to cash it out exactly uh the concern is for human rights, for real people and the, the struggles that they have just, just to live in the world. And those are the same concerns that people in Ohio have. I mean, we're talking about basic human rights. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you guys would know this, I'm sure, uh, better than me. I think it was John Locke that talked about that's where we got our phrase life, liberty and we called it pursuit of happiness. I think the original though was property, if I'm correct. Mm -hmm. And I understand some of the reasons why they didn't put a property in there, but ultimately that's really, if, if we could import or export those life, liberty and property, that, yeah. that is, that is life-changing. Mm -hmm. The Liberty part alone is, 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 yeah sometimes really hard for people to get like um, 
I mean, I think we saw it the last couple of years with all this stuff. Like what what, what uh, Paul was saying about safety first. I really loved how you put that. Where I and I couldn't help but think about the last two years yeah. about I, I, seeing people out here in California with with masks on at the beach. Yeah. I mean, you're on that beach. There's three thousand miles of open ocean. Oh. And and they start. I've seen this with my own eyes. It's the Seattle mentality. It's the left coast mentality, but it's fake. And I I see it in my students. It's a fake. I once you cut through it a little bit, take that top fake part off. Underneath is some common sense that's afraid to come out. It's afraid because mm -hmm. it's afraid of social judgment. It's mm -hmm. there. It just takes a little bit of work and say it's okay. Come on out. But I I'll tell you what I noticed on the beach that during when we were there on sunset the sun's going down and then as the sun the masks start coming off wow it's because wow. of social judgment so wow. they're afraid of being judged it's yeah. not that they really believe that it's right. safer at night for the virus <laughs> <laughs> they don't really believe that they're not even thinking enough to like link what they're doing wow. with belief but but it's it's about social pressure and you know the the direct buying is there any regulatory issues that you have faced that get in the way of that trying to think of what it was like when i was a kid it seems like there was only folgers there was like winchell's coffee when you went to winchell's but when i was a kid i don't remember starbucks or coffee shops that you went to for fufu coffee yeah uh, uh, that came about a little bit later, at least in my development. Curtis, do you remember any of that when you were a kid? No. Coffee I wasn't mean, like a big thing for, it was just no. like normal coffee. All through high school, it never, it, it was when I got to uh, college that I started real discovering that phenomena of Starbucks, you know. It's like beer, like beer, all of a sudden there's like every kind of beer imaginable. Where'd all yeah. this beer come from? Yeah. Back when I was a kid, it was like Paps Blue Ribbon. It was like Coors yeah. Light. Yeah. And, you know, Michelob, but, but it was no. like, it wasn't like uh, the variety that we have now, now it's same thing with coffee for different reasons, obviously, because you can't just make coffee in your like basement. But, um, you know, what, what do you, what do you, how do you explain that? You guys are, well, I mean, they, they, they say turn of the century, 1900, 1910, you had little community roasters. Uh, the woman of the house would go down to her neighborhood maybe bakery or, but roaster and get their bag of coffee for the week. And so somebody, some green coffee brokership was established, but the big in 1920s, pre, pre-World War II, you had these big brands established. And certainly after World War II, uh, the government fed coffee to the GIs and just coffee, coffee, coffee. And when they came home, is where this is what I understand all the labor laws beginning to include you need a coffee break at 10 coffee break at three a coffee break mm. uh, they say as these men as the world war ii veterans came home the wives are looking I'm like what is this coffee thing coffee coffee why do you gotta have coffee and it it really the big brands flourished and it just be, I mean, Starbucks for all the, I call them char bucks or four bucks. And, you know, for all the negatives that one can say about Starbucks, one thing they did 
they brought the idea of coffee is a product of place. You started seeing Sumatra. Wait a minute, I thought Folgers, Arabica, 100% mountain-grown Colombia. But they started doing Costa Rica, Sumatra, Tanzania, Peaberry. What, what is this? Is coffee, you mean, not? So the brands would take thousands of locations and farms and fincas and beneficios and co-ops and blend it into their national brand. Starbucks maybe branded the country, the origin, the, the farm. Uh, and so for that, I'm grateful for them. They, they opened that up. But then another wave, called, we call it the third wave of coffee, came in behind that and said, wait a minute, coffee can tell us how it wants to be roasted. If we just burn it like a Starbucks, a Seattle taste, uh, what's the difference between a Costa Rica and an Ecuador? It's huge. If you light roast it, you start getting nuances of berries and lemon and different mm. mouthfeels. And so that's kind of where we are today. And it's, it's hard for a big, br and we also know coffee has a decreasing shelf life. So it's, it's really tough for a big specialty coffee to do it right nationwide. And I think that's always going to have the regional roasters and state roasters. And I mean, we ship coffee all over the country, but after six weeks sitting on a shelf in California, I, I'm not proud of my coffee. I don't, it needs to be consumed before that. Paul, were you, what were you like in college? Were you like in your drinking your coffee and you were like, this has got notes of you know, elderberry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, uh, my donuts were on the bottom of the cup. You know, I was dunking <laughs> my donuts. But where, when did you become really either one of you? What, how, what did you, when did, was there a time when you were like, I'm sick of this crappy coffee or. That's a, that, that is a good question because I kind of in traveling to, uh, for, for Rosedale International, the, the ministry, I would be in Central America drinking wonderful coffee up in the highlands, in the valleys where all the cities are, San Jose or Managua, they're languishingly hot. So when you'd want to do a retreat, the pastors or uh, leaders would have it up in the mountains at a retreat center. Well, that's coffee zone. And we'd be drinking wonderful high altitude coffee. The higher it's grown, the harder the bean. The harder, more dense the bean, more interesting the flavor. The higher it's grown in the mountain, the more difficult the labor is to extract it. So to get really good coffee, is, is, uh, it's a miracle in that we can actually get it off of that remote mountain by mule. And, and here we are, at least I am, drinking it. <laughs> For me, it was an acquired taste over the year years because before it would have just been whatever's at the store or, you know, back when it was like, oh, that's did you try that hazelnut? That's so good. You know, that was about my level of coffee. And then as Paul uh, and Grace were roasting and I started getting their coffee, I'm like, it, you know, it totally changed for both my wife and I it changed our appreciation of coffee. And it became you realize, oh, there's a lot more to it than just coffee. And uh, so it's been a, yeah, over a period of time of drinking fresh roasted. I tell people it's kind of like, 
you know, you can go to the store and buy a tomato. Or if you grew one in the garden, you let it ripen on the vine, you bring it in. It's a whole different fruit altogether. It's like mm-hmm. they almost don't, aren't the same. Mm. Um, but I was thinking too, this, as you were talking about the beer and it's like, it's the same for coffee. You know, I don't think Budweiser is hurting at all, but there's, like you said, a million and one other, uh, more smaller or local or craft beers out there. So it, it didn't, the, the craft beer or the local brewery didn't necessarily, I'm sure there was some effect on Budweiser or whatever brand. And yet, it, it, what it did was it expanded. It's it, it expanded people's availability, people's taste, people's appreciation. Same with coffee. So it's not. I don't know. It, it taps back to that thing. I, I wonder if wealth is not unlimited. You know, and then cre- the due to the creativity that that God and wealth that He put on the earth. But anyway, um, yeah, those expanded brands just meant expanded opportunity for people. Yeah. Uh, you, one of you, I think Lucas, you had asked about regulatory. Um, their coffee has a favor, a bit of a favorable status to import to the 48 states because we don't grow coffee here. So there's no duty. And just a lot, of course, there, there is, it's, it's easy to hide drugs in containers of coffee and there's some of that. But by and large, I've found containers get through the ports to the rail to Chicago and then trucked to me uh, very smoothly. There's, that's not a problem. It's at the roaster level, the FDA and some of the, um, you know, clean air. uh, I remember back right after Trump was elected, my FDA inspector came in and he said, you know everything I've talked to you that you got to do? Yeah. He said, just forget that. You don't have to do it. <laughs> and it was things like getting a, a paper trail of liability. So if, if, if I sell coffee to an account and somebody drinks that coffee and dies, they can come back to me. Then I got to go to the farmer and have a release from i told this guy i said okay here's a guy two hours out of the city in a little community you drive off into a two track 19 click kilometers up to his farm i'm gonna hold him liable for some it's just not feasible well you got to do it you know and and then our roastery had to have um reclaim the smoke and burn it off and uh, that all went away. Uh, they walked in last fall and it's all back. So I don't know where we're going with that. Yeah. And and my, t- oh, sorry. Go ahead, Mike. Well, I was just going to say, keeping in mind, it's, it's, it's smoke from, from, from a uh, organic product. You know, it's, you know, yeah. as far as the reclamation goes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's a plant. I, I would be curious. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, that's good. Oh, I was gonna. I would be curious to know uh, what, if any, issues you've had uh, in country uh, as you've expanded and, in theory, taken away some growers from some of the larger, maybe cartels or larger, you know, yeah, cartels really. Um, my biggest 
issue right now is in northern Guatemala. We're working with, with, uh, and I think I can say this on this podcast because there's um, a yeah, lot might. of force, forces at work. But sure. in northern Guatemala, there is a cartel, and uh, it's a German coffee company that sits there. And it actually has sally ports or outside fences and in gates where the farmers, which are mostly um, Kachi Indian, uh, they're a, a very proud, very, but, but there was a people movement for Christ among that whole mountain ridge. Mm. And these Kachi people are believers, but here sits Dieseldorf coffee. And they, the farmers bring their cherries, drop them. They don't know what happens. They don't, they don't know what they're making. They're, they're growing cherries, delivering it. And Dieseldorf is extracting those profits and just ripping them off for decades. Well, we went, I went in about four years ago and we're working, I'm working with a, an expat, an American who's living up there in Coban, Guatemala. And uh, I mean, when I'm there, we're actually stay off the street during the day. I mean, it's it's bullet in the head potential because you're messing status quo. You're messing with the way it's always been. And uh, at night we go out in the street and go to a restaurant and stuff. But that was the weirdest thing I've ever. But for the most part, the governments are sympathetic. They realize they're maybe their main agricultural export We've, we've got to make sure the farmers, you know, can sustain the next generation. So there's two sociological problems happening right now in coffee. And I'm not parroting this. I've seen it. I've also read about it, but it's the graying of coffee. So the kids are saying, I do not want the life that my parents had. I've seen them work their fingers to the bone and grandpa and they'll go to the city, get an education and get a job in banking or graphic design, or they're not coming back. So I'm seeing an older and older producer. Mm. But also another factor is the feminization of coffee, where the men go to the cities for work, come home weekends, and the women are left with the small children on the farm to do pretty heavy work. And when the men are in the city, there's mistresses, there's other families emerging there that they don't know about each other. And it's just causing a cult, a, a social issue, morality issue, and particularly Nicaragua, mm. Honduras, some of the more poor producing countries that, uh, you know, I, I've talked to people back in the mountains, you know, have, when was the last time you were in Managua? Never, never been to Managua. It's a three hour bus ride. So it's a whole different life. It's a whole different world in the city than back in the mountains. Mm. So we got to pay fairly. We got to, it has to work for the producers and the whole uh, big brands are getting pushed. They're going to have to start buying better coffee because farmers, if there's no money in it, why would they do it? What I hear you saying, you, you guys is that the, what you're bringing the 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 genesis of this company is not just a love of coffee although that's probably like the main thing right but it's a heart for these people 
it grew out of mission work. That's how you had the relationships and the knowledge base of this unique area or these new unique areas that grow coffee. And then an appreciation for the expertise that business people bring. That's why you brought them over there to figure out how we can make this work, how you can make this work for them and for you. And you also have a love for freedom because that's how you see the world. God created the world. We're created in the image of God. Everybody, Americans and non-Americans, have rights as bearers of image of God and dignity and sometimes their socioeconomic status and the horrible overbearing government control and regulation that crushes small business, crushes initiative and, and crushes the ability of people to have hope that they can make a living apart from dependency of the government. That that's driving the the mission of your company, Hunter's Point, right? Well said. So I think that's a good reason. Tell us about your products. What 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 kind of products do you have? How do, how do people get in touch with you? How do they find you? Yeah, we sell most of ours online at huntersblendcoffee.com. And okay, we'll link uh, that. So we've got a, a dark roast we call black powder. And it's about as dark as we can roast it. Like Paul was saying, you roast something too dark, you're just going to burn off all the notes and it's just, it just kind of burnt. So it's as dark as we can make it while still retaining nice flavor, nice notes. It's, it's a nice bold. One of, our, uh, one of our running jokes is you don't need creamer to drink Hunter's Plan coffee. You don't need to edge off those sharp notes. Um, and then we, uh, our original roast is, is, is what it is. It's the original roast that was designed as like a medium, maybe dark side of medium. Then we have a light roast, Dawn's Early Light. And uh, then we've got a, a flavored option too. It's called Java Rum. Our decaf is, is, is a medium roast. It's the Nicaraguan coffee. Um, and a lot of times with decaf, for whatever reason, coffee companies will use the cheap coffee as though people that drink decaf don't care about the flavor. Well, that would be literally the only reason to drink decaf because it's not going to keep you awake. So it's, but it's often decaf gets a bad rap. It's like horrible coffee. This is really good coffee. It's a lot of people will say, I don't taste the difference. And uh, so, yeah, but you can get all of that. And then we've got uh, our, uh, you know, merch on there, t-shirts and stuff made in the U S we got a, a made in the U S ceramic mug on there as well as other other gear um this the stainless steel the double walled stainless steel stuff i don't know of a u.s manufacturer like our our uh, double wall stainless mugs and tumblers and stuff unfortunately um I'm, I'm hoping through all of this stuff or supply chain issues that somebody's going to start thinking about more things that can be made here that's currently imported but awesome. uh, yeah huntersblendcoffee.com Curtis, did you have anything that you wanted to pop in there? No, I, I mean, it would be nice if we could get some more American manufacturing um, of those things. I, I just have loved uh, meeting you guys on this podcast and, and hearing your hearts and visions. Um, clearly, we're aligned uh, yeah. in, in a lot of things, and I, I love that. Um, I, I want to see us uh, have you guys. I'd love to have you guys on again and talk about more things. 
um, and, and promote your company. Uh, what we need are good people starting companies, working companies, and uh, coming together and supporting each other. This is good. Yeah. Great stuff, guys. Well, I we really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, yes. absolutely. And I, I to get to meet you guys. We want to we want to help educate people about the challenges that businesses face, how businesses come about, what's the point of it? Why can't just the government do everything? <laughs> and and just you know, try to <laughs> for people who want to know, it's there. This will go into an archive. It'll be there for years, Lord willing. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we said anything that's going to get us censored, but, um, you know, who knows the powers that be, but the Lord willing, this will go into an archive for years and years and people can keep checking it out all around the world. It's public. So we'll share this. We'll, we'll link your website where people can find out information and find out how to contact you. And we look forward to having you guys on again at some point. Sounds good. Have a great day. Great to meet you. Awesome. Yeah, you guys. Take care. <laughs> this is the subscription only extra credit part. We're talking about fair trade regulation and policy. What does it mean to be fair trade coffee? Yeah, a lot of people ask us about, oh, yeah, I, I drink fair trade coffee. Is that, is that what this is? And really, nothing could be farther from the truth. Uh, with the fair trade program, what a lot of people don't realize is farmers are limited to 10% of their coffee can even be put in the fair trade program. But um, out of that, to get that fair trade designation, it puts a lot of extra work, paperwork, cost, time for the farmer to do that. And the, the amount more that they, of increase that they get paid on that fair trade percentage is very minor. Their mm -hmm. joke among the farmers to, is fair for who? Because they realistically, they don't, they don't see it. There's been articles written that were, I think it was, Oh, in one case, they figured it was an average of $28 a year, I think, that the farmer made more. So it's probably a, a great idea, you know, it's, it's, but when it's done from a, a government, governmental or regulatory approach, top down, it just doesn't, unfortunately, pan out to the farmer. And then there's a whole quality thing, too, that Paul knows more about. Yeah, well, I mean, that you touched on something, Mike, the word fair, I'm not fluent in Spanish, but the word fair trade is translated almost like justice or just. And, and I often get it when I ask, how has fair trade benefited you? The farmer, he's looking around, seeing who's listening. Nothing. The heffy or the director, he got new tin on his roof or he got a new car the premiums that were paid from fair trade to the co-op very seldom trickle down to the farmer. And if they do go to the farmer, here's what's going to happen. I might walk up to the farmer and say, and he knows I'm coming. I'm here to buy coffee. He sorts off 10% of, of the worst coffee to give to the fair trade buyer because there's no quality check. And he has me check his best coffee. So my deduction from that, and I don't think I'm wrong. I've, I've looked, I've looked into this a lot is that fair trade coffee on the market in the U S is the worst coffee the producer can produce because there's, there's no, it's just, you poor guy, you need a little more money. Nobody's ever done that to me. They say, produce something good and I'll give you more money. 
that explains wow. so much of my experience with fair trade coffee just as a consumer. Yes. Yes. I never am impressed with it. I'm and always I'm always like, okay, all right. I, but well, so there, there's a real benefit to fair trade, a real benefit. And that's for the American consumer to feel good that their purchase is somehow helping somebody. It's a little bit like the little Really Christmas huge. sign around here, Santa Claus. Just believe. Just, well, well now, now wait it's a second. Just there's believe. A, there's another benefit, and that's to the to the company who's getting a higher margin because yes, they're indeed. selling that yep. for way more yeah, than the rest yeah. of the coffee. Yeah, it's under delivered, oversold. Yeah, and this may step on a few toes, but the reality is that reminds me a lot of organic coffee. Uh, oh, we get yes. that question a lot: is, is your coffee organic? Well, one thing a lot of people don't know is every um, any uh, agricultural product being imported into the U.S. by the FDA is required to become fumigated when it lands to because you're going to have spiders and oh, snakes no. hitchhiking. I so see that, where this is going. So even if it is organic, it's all literally fumigated. Uh, it's not organic anymore. Yeah. But the, there's no chemicals in the fumigation, right? Right. No, correct. Yeah. water, right? There's people working on food grade fumigation. It's like, come on, it, it doesn't exist at the moment. But the quality too, Paul, you've got, I remember, you know, your input on the quality of the organic uh, coffee because of a lack of, a bill of availability to use fertilizer what yeah. it does to the coffee quality. Yeah. 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 When you look at a handful of beans that were organically grown, they've got, we call them broken Spanish or little bug bites. And uh, at the right time of the flower season, early May, throwing a little bit, little bit of granular fertilizer helps that plant be strong to get it through that phase of flower to, to cherry. Mm. And if you're organic, you're not doing any of that. So you've got crop that is undeveloped or but uh, less production. And then a little spray at the right time takes care of the broke up. Mm. And, and again, it's not like just covering it. I remember Diego told me a story. He said, I, I one time a production seminar he went to said you need to spray you know like crazy so he said i got the spraying equipment and i put my guys out there they came in that night we'd take two to the clinic because they weren't breathing right and he said right then i decided i'm going to take care of my farm i'm going to take care of my workers we're going to do a little fertilizer we're going to do a little spray but we're not you know so that that's kind of the mentality plus Diego, actually, the last three, four years, money's been so tight, he's not had any inputs. And he's, they, he learned to take a cup and you put a little yellow grease up in the cup and you hang it on the plants. And the male broca, the male bug goes, is attracted to that yellow and gets stuck. And he's, there's alternative methods for insect control and they're learning and but yeah, generally organic coffee is either not organic. Diego every year has a half a dozen buyers come to him, say, I, I need want to buy coffee, Diego. And he said, well, aren't you organic buyer? Yes, but like I said, I need coffee. So I don't know. 
because once it's roasted in 600 degree air, this was Michael Savitz out of Corvallis, Oregon. He was, uh, he was a chemist. He did a lot of research in the eighties on traditional grown coffee and organic and in the test tube after roasting, going through all that heat, the allergens, the any non, any chemical on or in the coffee was burned off. Could not find a difference in a, in a lab. So I don't know. It's, it, it is again. Does that mean the fumigation chemicals, the fumigation chemicals that are there? Well, if it was grown with, with fertilizer in, in origin, Mm -hmm. uh, they cannot find the uptake in the bean after it was roasted. And yeah, the, the fumigation is burned off too. Yeah. That th- this raises so many interesting issues about regulation, and the uh, regulation always is meant well, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, the the Russian Revolution <laughs> that led to seventy years of Soviet tyranny for mil- tens of millions of people and murder, by the way, that that all was meant well. Sure. We, we mean well. You don't know. You don't understand. We mean well. And the same with uh, anything, you know, I mean, any anything that you where, where government has a has too much of a place. Um, my Bernie kids, I, I, I tell them you're concerned about the one percent. They're like, yeah, well, the one percent. I said, do you know who the one percent really is? It's the government. The government owns 85 percent of Nevada. Trump owns one block. Who's the one percent? <laughs> you know, uh, the one percent is a is a multiple trillionaire, also in debt, but you know, also has nuclear weapons. So I mean, you know, um, Trump doesn't. You know, I mean, so they they're not used to thinking of the government as an actor, as an owner of property, as as a as an owner of bank accounts banked heavily banked and it's easy for them to not not consider that and i'm it's so weird for me why would you not consider that it's like the biggest elephant in the room the government yeah wow and you have to think of how the government affects your life it's not like the government can do whatever it wants why is that why would that be the case that that's a theory of government that the government is sovereign not you and you're seeing this in places like Canada, for example, that that theory is exactly on display yes. on display yeah. all over the world. Who's really in charge? Yeah. Does the government get to do whatever it wants to do simply because it exists? And it's a theory of government. You got to have a theory of government. Ours is spelled out in our founding documents that it's the people that are in charge. The government does not have rights. It has powers delegated to it by the people. And if you get those backwards, then you're always going to get confused. Yeah. yeah. And the FDA, it's not the F, it's not like the FDA is over there going, what can we do good today? Yeah. No, they, they have a mandate from the people. And sometimes that mandate is not very well thought out. Like what you were talking about with the FDA when Trump came on. And you mentioned it was just basically a bunch of paperwork and yeah. bureaucracy, yeah. and it was just passed on to the consumer. 
for what? I mean, who's who who is standing in line to buy a coffee or who's online ordering your bag of coffee really worried that they're going to die? Yeah. And I, I just need to know who I can sue in order to die if I die from this cup of coffee. I mean, well, I mean, so anyway, Good we stuff, really, man. we really um, are, we're barely scratching the surface because you guys know so much. And uh, so thank you for joining us for this little extra tidbit. <laughs> 